the genesis of that failure rate is, I think, largely a lack of vision or a lack of understanding of what those two words, when you put them together, actually mean for your company. And, you know, digital transformation is almost a meaningless phrase at this point, unless you provide some context about what does that mean for us? Welcome to The Wrap, Resource of As a Podcast. I'm Nick Cressy, Managing Director of Strategic Partnerships, joined by our President Kyle Hall. This podcast will feature conversations with guests ranging from industry thought leaders to private equity operators and technology innovators, all with an aligned focus on delivering business outcomes. Whether you're an operating partner at a private equity firm, a CIO, or other business leader, tune in weekly as we share insights from the expanding playing field of digital transformation. Today, we're speaking with Walton Carter. Really enjoyed the conversation here. We dive into a lot of different aspects of leadership. You know, Walt's a fellow veteran, so there's a, a little bit of that in here, and you kind of get to get to hear in there how he's used some of his experiences from the Air Force and has brought those into leadership in executing on digital transformation. So it's a, it's a great conversation. I personally learned a lot from it and really enjoyed it. Hope you do, too. Welcome to The Wrap, Walt Carter, Chief Digital Officer, CIO, COO. You're an author, you're a keynote speaker. You even say you're an amazing podcast guest, so we're pumped to have you. Thanks for joining The Wrap. Glad to be with you guys today. Excited to be here today. Thanks. Yeah, we're going to talk about digital transformation and really some of the pitfalls and things to avoid. But before we do that, let's just hear a little background about you, because like I said in the opening, you've worn a lot of hats. You know, I have, you know, and I still got most of my hair, you know, when, when you look at my career, I'm in, I'm in my 40th year right now from, from graduating from college with my physics degree. You know, I, I started out coding back then and built a nuclear particle accelerator simulation for my undergraduate thesis on a VAX in basic plus. I had a big time with that and, you know, that kind of warped me for the rest of my life. I also spent, I spent about four years up in North Dakota working on intercontinental ballistic missiles. So I'm, I'm a card carrying rocket scientist that's actually worked on real rockets. And, and then, yeah, I spent three years doing airborne command and control on a mission called Looking Glass for, for SAC headquarters and then up to NORAD headquarters for about a year. And I got out of the Air Force in 1992 and went into corporate. Mostly IT jobs and uh, mostly leadership roles over the, the intervening years. And I'm now at my third mortgage company as a chief digital officer and CIO. At the last two, I was CIO and CMO. And as you pointed out, Kyle, uh, early on, or Nick, I, I was a, a chief operating officer before that. So I, I get to span lots of different roles and I, I have the kind of curiosity and passion that lets me dive into stuff and then take take things on quickly. I've always been able to learn fast. Uh, it's a superpower of mine. And, uh, you know, so, you know, and, and I'm curious, right? I just want to, I want to understand how things work. And that's actually what led to the book a couple of years ago. I put a book out on change leadership and I felt like, you know, near the end of my career, I want to let the young guys know the scars that I have and and how to avoid some of them. And especially doing big change uh, implementation, software implementations, you know, the, the, the thing I, I, I start with on digital transformation is it's not about the technology. It's always about the people. 
And you guys can just kind of dive into that from there. I, I'll, I'll also add, I'm, I'm married for 34 years to the beautiful Eileen Politti. I have four children, uh, all of them grown and mostly gone from the house at this point. I have one grandson uh, that is four and a half years old, and he, he keeps me very young. And so, you know, I got a full life, a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, it's exciting. A stat you referenced when we were doing our prep is... Look, 70 to 80% of digital transformation projects fail in some way. Is it because folks start with the technology instead of the people first? Like kind of diagnose that. Why do you think that happens? And where are the, where are the trends from your experiences? You know, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, that the numbers come from the, the big three strategy consultancies, right? So Bain, McKinsey, you know, Boston Consulting Group. You know, and if you, if you kind of pull each one of those, you get a, a slightly different number, but it's always in that 70 to 85% failure rate. The genesis of that failure rate is, I think, largely a lack of vision or a lack of understanding of what those two words, when you put them together, actually mean for your company. And, you know, digital transformation is almost a meaningless phrase at this point, unless you provide some context about what does that mean for us? What are we moving from analog to digital? What are we, you know, transforming exactly in our business? I hear, uh, you know, a lot of people from stage talking about, well, it shouldn't be called digital transformation. Well, it should be called business transformation. That's what it should be. Uh, I'm like, yeah, but that's not what they call it. They call it digital transformation, right? So, uh, you know, what, what's the deal there, you know? And then you can split hairs and get into semantics and talk about, well, are we just taking a bunch of stuff that's that's currently analog and manual and trying to build some process automation and digitalization around those kinds of things? Are we removing human labor or are we adding, you know, you know, processing speed, power? What are we doing here? How do we do it? And, you know, and then you throw that transformation word in there and that all of a sudden shifts it from just a project or a program to do some kind of improvement or add some automation to, well, we've got to make a substantive change here from what we were before to what we're going to be at the end, right? And, uh, you know, it's a very powerful work transformation. And, and so, you know, back to what, what is, what's the root of all the failure? I think a lot of people don't do the homework up front to figure out, well, what does that mean to us? What, what are we actually doing? What's the vision for this thing? So if we're going to be transformed, what are, what are we being transformed into and what's that going to look like, feel like, smell like, taste like? How are we going to measure that transformation? How do we know when we're done? Is there a when we're done or is it a continuous improvement journey that we're about to start that that will never end? Right? And uh, I actually think that's the right answer. If, if your transformation has a known defined state, you're probably not doing a transformation. Yeah, I really kind of. A lot of times it's more, it's more concept in a direction with an azimuth. It's kind of what I, what I've seen. How, how, what's the, what's the kind of best framework you found or best mode of, of talking about that or framing that, right? Because even, even in how you just described it, I mean, it's, it's somewhat ephemeral. It's a commitment towards a journey and a commitment towards a direction with, you know, the traditional model and, and, Technology, or really in any projects, one of the defining characteristics of a project is that it has a known end state. And this is something where you're saying, "Hey, there, there isn't necessarily a known end state, right? There's a known, there's a known direction, and we know some of the outcomes that we want to produce from it. 
and some of the benefits that we're trying to to achieve. But I mean, what have you seen as far as kind of best practices for how to how to frame or shape something so that you can define when you're there? So you know, I use three main tools, I guess. You know, now having done three of these digital transformations as a leader myself, I use three main tools. The first thing I needed to understand was the organization itself, right? So who are we? What are we all about? How do we deliver value into the marketplace, right? And I break that that whole organization down into four significant chunks. And I'm an ex-military guy, as you, as you guys know. And so it's an acronym for me called MOAT, M-O-A-T. It says, you know, I need to understand the management layer, the CEO and the board perspective on this transformation. I need to understand what that means for operations, right? What are the processes and procedures, protocols that are going to change as a result of this new vision? Over on the administrative side, I need to understand how is this going to affect the back office guys? What, what does that mean for accounting and finance? What does it mean for HR? All right. You know, and then I look at, you know, the technology layer underneath all of those other three and I go, okay, now how's this going to affect us? And how does, how does this become? you know, a, a value center from technology instead of a cost center, uh, right? Because we're going to be pushing digitalization or digital process improvements, digital automation into these other three main areas of our company. So I, I need to understand what those impacts are going to be, right? How is this going to affect the people? And that's really the most important question. Second tool besides Moat is, is a framework that I discovered back in the late 1990s, early 2000s called the Lipit Noster change framework. And that's a really powerful tool. I think there are six blocks in that tool. See if I can do it from memory. The first block is vision. The second block is skills, resources, incentives, consensus, and action plan. I think those are the, the, the six major elements of Lipit Noster. Consensus, by the way, was added. It was one of those that came later. And because, you know, the folks that, that are the brains behind Lipit Nostra realize that if you don't have and maintain consensus, you're per, pretty much doomed, right? If you're, you're going to get sabotaged by other visions that are competing, which will also then derail your, your key resources on the effort. The most important block in that to me is always the vision block. If you, if you have a complete, well-defined, very granular vision, of what it is you're trying to accomplish with this transformation, you can make adjustments to each of those other blocks, right? Without that, that sweeping vision, you really can't. And without the detail level granularity of the vision, you really can't. So the, the bulk of the Lipit Noster change framework really relies on the executive team. And then if you understand how change really works in organizations of people, you got to have many, many stakeholders that, that are, you know, part of that constituency that are going to be affected by the change or, or be driving the change. They got to have a voice and a, and a, and a big input into the whole protocol, right? Otherwise you wind up with this fantasy from the executives that doesn't match the reality on the ground of where we're touching our customers. Somehow in the visioning, you've got to, you, you know, and I call those design sprints, right? You've got to bring all of those people together. And you've got to start managing to bring reality all the way into the future vision and, and make sure that you've got a clear chart to get there. You know, the, the third key tool that I use is one called the Kenefin framework. A gentleman over in the UK named Dave Snowden uh, put together, I think, first in 1999 as well. 
And this comes from uh, chaos theory and, and sense making, right? And it, it basically is a recognition that you can't know everything before you start. Sorry, CFOs, it's just not possible, right? And you, you've got you've to have a willingness to explore things that don't look like a regular pattern. And, and Dave's framework is pretty solid. I think he says, look, you move you know, from simple where there might be a best practice you can just go grab off the shelf to, uh, hey, it's a little more complicated than simple. And then it's not just complicated, it's complex. Or heck, we can't even see a pattern here. This is chaos. And and how you, you know, emerge and, and insert yourself into each of those kind of quadrants, uh, you know, changes your leadership style and it changes what you're asking of your team members, uh, right? So if it's obvious, follow the checklist, right? But if it's not, we got to create a checklist. And if there's no checklist, that, that exists and, and there's no real pattern here. We've got to figure out what the pattern is first before we can create a checklist, right? And as you keep moving around, it's basically a recognition that there's always going to be unknowns, right? And, you know, I'm doing a talk next week on, uh, you know, the, the fallacy of percent completes as a, a measurement tool, right? Cause I don't know how many times I've seen projects stall out at 99% complete and be at 99% complete for weeks and weeks and weeks. Right. You know, and it's because you hit something that nobody understood or was, was not, you know, definable. And, and all of a sudden you got this problem when you thought you were most of the way home. Right. As a leader, you've got to know how to deal with that before it happens to you. And you've got to train up your teams on how to encounter the unknowns and what to do when they do you know, run into the dragons and the, and the beast out there. There's a leadership framework that's really, really the key driver for how you do transformations. And, and I, I feel like that 75 to 85%, you know, it really comes from a lack of leadership. And, you know, I, I'll tell you guys that, you know, again, I'm into my 40th year now doing this kind of work. Several years ago, I ran across this group called the Standish Group, and they published every four years what they call the chaos report. So they pulled in you know, statistical data from all kind of IT projects and programs across a wide variety of companies and, and across nations. And, and they said in 1998 or 99, I think that, you know, executive sponsorship was the number one reason for failure of most of those projects. And, and it stayed number one for years, right? And, and if you translate that over to digital transformation, it, it makes sense then that leadership or lack of leadership is still the number one factor that drives, you know, these failures, right? Just didn't have a good understanding of what the vision was, didn't, didn't have that complete understanding or the map to reality. There's a, there's one other tool that, you know, I think is really the critical one for the leader of the transformation. And that's understanding that the essence of change leadership is creating a stable path to a definable future. And, and also, I love what uh, Chris McChesney and the guys in uh, Four Disciplines of Execution say. You got to make it a winnable game. People love to win a game, right? And they don't mind playing hard if there's a winnable game that they can get to. We've got to figure out how to, to gamify our transformation efforts, make it a winnable game, and get the scoreboard up quickly and keep it up so everybody can see where we really are as we move toward you know those finish lines along the sub-elements of that transformation. So I'm going to stop there. You guys, you know, ask me whatever you want to ask. Next. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of pieces, a uh, lot of pieces to poke into there. 
I mean, that was that was really good. I, I loved uh, the final piece, right, about making it a winnable game. I think one of the things we try to focus on in our engagement, but I mean, also like in my own leadership internally, you know, as one of our core values is win together. But, you know, it's like, how how do you win and how does it impact at all levels? Not just not just at the strategic level and this compelling vision about how we're going to win in the market, but how does that influence, you know, our operations? How does it make them easier? What is that? What does winning look like there? But all the way down to the tactical level, you know, how, how is this going to be a win in the day-to-day life of, of the team members who are participating? I want to go back to something though, because you talked about consensus and you talked about it being a later ad and it's, it, maybe it's top of mind for me because I, you know, we, we have a, a certain engagement right now and, and I'm experiencing something and it isn't the first time, but I imagine you've experienced it too, where like, where do you, where do you draw the line around consensus? Right. Cause at, at some point, you can spend a lot of time trying to build consensus, right? And have, have dissenters and spend a lot of time in one place trying to build consensus versus saying, Hey, especially given kind of your comments around chaos and not being able to know the unknown, right? Like at some point you're going to say, this is the information we have. This is the direction we're going on, you know, and, and like an acceptable consensus, right? I think. I've seen projects get stalled and, and I would even say it's maybe a, a kind of a poor leadership quality when consensus is too highly, highly prioritized in that. Like in, in your own experience or observations, how do you, how do you kind of have that balance? Cause obviously you need consensus. You need, you know, your, your, you need your finance, finance, you know, department supporting it. You need operations supporting it. You need alignment, but there is this difference between alignment and consensus. There's a, yeah, there's a huge difference there. And, uh, you know, cause you can walk out of a boardroom where everybody's just nodded up and down and said, yep, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. And this is how we know we're going to be done. And we're all committed. And, uh, you know, and then two steps down the hall, I get a tap on the shoulder that says, you know, actually I can't do that. Walt. you know, we got this huge compliance effort that takes precedence over everything that we just talked about. And, uh, you know, I just realized I'm not going to be able to, you know, do that. And I'm like, well, then you should go back in with me right now to the CEO's office and put that on the table. You know, that was your opportunity a few minutes ago when we were in that boardroom. Well, no, Wall, you, you just have to go tell him. But, you know, bottom line is I just, I, I realize I can't support you. And I, I'm going, no, and I'm sorry. I can't accept that. And I can't accept the responsibility for your unwillingness to actually, you know, commit one way or the other. So we're going to walk down the hall together right now, or I'm going to walk back to your office in a few minutes with that same CEO. And and we're going to have this out. We just can't, we can't dance around this. This is not a, you know, you're, you're one foot in, one foot out. That's not going to work. And if you're all the way out, but you've told everybody you're all the way in, well, that's a real problem for our organization too. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm a CIO. I have a fiduciary responsibility just like you do. We're going to sort this out. I, I think, you know, one of the things I loved about being in the military is you don't necessarily have to agree with the commander's decision, but at a certain point, you salute smartly, click your heels, and you press on like it's your idea, right? You give it everything you got to make it a win, even though it wasn't your idea, right? Or or that you you didn't like the, the approach, right? You know, but you, you have responsibility in the military to raise all of those issues before the decision is made. But once the decision's made, you know, you salute and you keep, you keep rocking. I mean, corporate world is not quite so simple, right? You know, you, you kind of have to spend that time. I like your, your distinction though, Kyle, because, you know, one of the other things is if you can get to that alignment, 
There's another phrase that I borrow from, from kind of my musical background. You know, I used to spend a lot of time in, in high school playing saxophone in a band. And whenever we'd get together to start t- attacking a piece of music together, the very first step was always to tune, right? You know, because if you play your instruments, you wind up, you know, getting out of tune over time, right? You know, and you play for a little while, you work out, you get used to the music and the flow, and you start to add your own elements of personality or your band's kind of infusion into that piece of music. You stop and you still tune, right? Because now you played for a little while, you got to tune. I think you've got to, as a leader, you got to keep tuning for alignment. You got to make sure that everybody's always aligned all the time and it needs to be top to bottom. So, you know, one of the techniques I use for that is, you know, I never brief out at the end of a meeting where we're going through uh, elements of the, the transformation. I always pick somebody randomly to make sure they know what the vision is and they can, they can repeat it still. It's, and, and everybody knows I'm going to call on somebody randomly. So they all try to, to make sure they're staying tuned to that vision. And that, per, that turns out to help a lot, right? When everybody's on the same page and they stay on the same page, it really helps the whole organization keep moving in the, in the one direction. You know, you mentioned something that I want to dig into a little bit here. You said it's not as simple in the corporate world as it is in the military, but think about a GFC, a ground force commander's there. There's immediate feedback if a mission's going wrong. There's immediate feedback if your guy's getting shot, if the helo's going down, whatever. In these projects, it's not so immediate. And these CEOs and these C-levels as a whole are removed from those ground forces. Where should they be looking? What should they be looking out for from the people perspective to say, I got a problem brewing here, even if they think they laid out the vision clearly and they had buy-in? Yeah, I think one of the other great, great notions from that, that four disciplines of execution book is leading indicators versus lagging indicators. And, uh, you know, and, and truthfully, painfully, I have to confess that the leading indicators are really hard to figure out. But if you don't figure them out, you're always working blind, right? You know, it's, it's, you know, again, thinking back to military days, you know, without the eyes in the skies or the forward, you know, controllers. You know, you have no idea what you're about to run into, right? But just a little tip off from somebody that's running up ahead or up in the air, and all of a sudden you're very well prepared to deal with whatever comes out of the jungle, right? And, uh, you know, so the, the goal is no surprises. And, and that's true for the executives as well, right? How do we keep from being surprised? How do you, how do you have a project that is completely green for months at a time? And then all of a sudden it goes completely off the rails and it's unrecoverable. Well, it's because nobody knew what the right leading indicators were, right? And so all you have is that lagging indicator that says, oh, crap, we're, we're stuck here and there's no movement, right? And so when, when you start thinking about these leading indicators, you know, I've seen, I've seen a lot of people do it really badly. You know, I, very publicly, I think Nokia spent over a billion dollars on their digital transformation. One of their key measures was how many people have attended agile training, you know, what a joke, right? You know, who cares? Who cares how many people have attended agile training? What does that do to deliver value to our organization? Right. The key is, are they using what they learned in the training or not? Are they developing maturity or, you know, proficiency in those practices? Are we seeing a change in our throughput because we're agile? Right. Those, those are the kind of things that you've got to, you, you've got to spend the time to think your way through just like we did. In the military, I mean, we were always planning. We were always planning. And then after every action, 
There's what we call an after action review where we sit down and go, okay, what went, what went well in our plan? What didn't go so well? What should we have just completely revisioned because it didn't work at all? Right. And we apply those learnings to everything that we're doing so that we, we get better and better over time. There's a, there's a continuous learning or continuous improvement loop. That's, that's really the key to organizational excellence. Uh, if you don't build that into your culture and y- you're, you're again, kind of like I said before, you're kind of always flying blind, right? I don't know what we're good at. I don't know what we could be great at. I, I don't know what we're getting better at. I don't know where we suck. Right. And, and then to your point though, Nick, I think one of the other questions that you got to ask is who are the, the people that that executive team ought to be building relationships with early in a big significant program so that they can go in and get a quick gut check. Right. We used to call it management by walking around and some of the best leaders I've ever worked for were the guys that were always out there in amongst the people that delivered the value and they would find the ones that had the most credibility, the most in their organization, and they would go query them. And, you know, you got to be real careful too, because some people spend negative all the time and they're alarmist. So everything's an emergency. Other people, you know, ignore the truth, you know, until it it swats them like a fly. And they're thinking, you know, well, the sun is keep shining, right? It's going to be a beautiful day. You're like, no, I, I don't need, I don't need the Pollyanna guys. I need, I need to find the people in my organization that when change comes through, everybody looks to them and goes, okay, how does Nick respond to this? Is Nick positive about this? Is Nick negative about this? Is Nick neutral about this? Cause the guys that have the most influence in your organization are the ones with the most credibility and you need to gauge them to see, you know, how is this going and, and stay away from the ones that are, you know, kind of peak polarity guys, negative or positive. All right. And that's a, that's a good way for you to figure out what you got. Not the best and it's not the only, but it's a really good way because now you can jump in and you can do an intervention, right? Oh, things look like they're going off the rails. You know, Kyle, who's a reliable guy, just gave me three red flags in a quick, you know, five minute burst. I'm going to have to go dig in here. Right. And yeah, again, over the years, I've had a lot of project managers and program managers that want the report to look good. And so the status report looks good, right? And you, you kind of have to strip that down every once in a while and just say, look, nouns, verbs, names, right? And I, I need stoplight reporting. And I don't really care about the green stuff. You don't even need to show me that. Show me what's going off the rails that's turning orange and show me the stuff that's red where I'm going to have to spend money to get it back on track. Yeah. That's what we can talk about. Yeah, between between that, some stripped down reporting and then kind of, you know, what you're really talking about is kind of this concept of scouts out in the organization, you know, and and trust but verify, right? Kind of those couple of those things together and you you do a pretty decent job of being able to see things early early and often. Well, you know, unfortunately we only we only have so much time here. I'll say I think we did a I think we did a pretty good job of not ending up to only talking about like our our respective military experience and its application to our to our jobs now. We could probably do a whole another a whole another podcast on that because there's there's a ton there, right? I mean, I can hear it I hear it in in what you're talking about. Obviously, Nick and I talk about that fairly often, but really appreciate having you on coming on today and, you know, that's a wrap. 
Hope you guys enjoyed that. Really liked Walt's perspective on a couple things. But we were talking, Kyle, and since he was military, I'll continue down the GFC route. So, you know, you have that, that ground force commander, fault the CEO. Then you have the people that are kicking the doors in that are actually doing the missions, right? And that's going to be your middle management and that's going to be the rest of your workforce. In your experience, when you're, when we're working with these two, three, $10 billion companies, we are very often aligning strategically with the CIO, the CPO, the CFO. But our work is done and really our temperature check on how these projects are going way down the chain of command. What are you looking for? What are you listening for? Because even us, as much exposure as we have over a six, 12, 18 month engagement, we don't get to talk to everyone. But what are you listening for? Because those lead and lag measures during a beefy transformation are really challenging. Well, I think the thing that's interesting is, you know, the way Walt framed up being able to have those people in the organization that can be trusted, you know, who, who maybe they're not your PM, maybe they're not your, your program manager, your project manager. They may not be, they may not even be in a director role, right? It may just be these feelers that you have out there. And I kind of, I kind of put a name to what he was describing and called them scouts. But, you know, I think the thing we've seen in some of our engagements and the way we've even been shoulder tapped with some of the C- CIOs that we work with is, you know, in one off capacity where they'll pull one of our consultants aside or one of our senior consultants aside or our implementation manager to get an independent feel for how a project's going or even how they're operating. You know, one of the, it's one of the, call it an advantage and maybe just call it a different perspective, but, you know, at any given time, we're doing this across dozens of companies. Right. And people only know what they know. And oftentimes they're, they're heads down on, you know, their own operations, their own environment and don't get that outside independent perspective about, Hey, like, are we, are we moving faster than other companies do? Are we moving slower? Are the things that we consider constraints? Are those also constraints that other companies have or do they work around them differently? Like, I think that level of, of collaboration and kind of outside thinking, whether it's with, you know, a company like ours, you know, or a vendor or peers, right? I mean, I, I, obviously there's a lot of CIO peer groups, but even at lower levels, right? I think it's important, you know, regardless of your role in an organization to have peers that are outside that organization where you can discuss, you know, some of the challenges that you're experiencing and, and try to find ways around them that are, you know, kind of out outside of the box. And in this case, the box being your own operational environment where you can get, you know, another, another perspective on how some of these things could be challenged without being within the bounds of kind of this, the standard thinking and operating model that you're in. Very cool. I mean, it's great to hear the lessons learned. I mean, 40 years of experience. He's clearly learned a lot. Check out his books. I know he's always speaking. We're really excited for the partnership. So we'll be back again in a couple weeks with another episode. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening to The Wrap, Resourceive as a Podcast. For more information about Resourceive and how we are creating value for our clients, find us at resourceive.com or reach out to us directly at therap at resourceive.com.